It was exciting this week uh, to watch the progress of the large part of our facility being torn down because it means we're one step closer by God's grace to be able to build a new sanctuary on that same spot. Uh, But that gray building, even though it was virtually condemned, had quite a history. It was built in the early 1900s when people still used horse and buggy. I was told by one of our neighbors whose daughter was an actual elementary student in this gray building that teachers would come up from Greenville to teach, and instead of making the long drive back to Greenville uh, from Traveler's Rest, uh, I I suspect on horse and buggy or Model T or something like that, uh, they would stay overnight in that white house that you see across the street. That house was built originally to house teachers in the early 1900s. So this building has been standing for a long time. And as many of you realize, there are a lot of things that have to be true about a structure if it's going to remain standing for a long time and not collapse over the years. And one of the most important things that must be true of an entire building is that it must be plumb. That means its walls must be perfectly vertically straight so that the weight of each brick rests precisely centered upon the one below it. And this precision of balance helps to ensure the longevity of the structure. Traditionally, therefore, builders would make sure their walls were straight using a plumb line. I think most of you know what a plumb line is. A plumb line operates by gravity to determine the exact vertical line, especially if you want to build something like a wall or a whole building, and you want to make sure it's straight and therefore structurally sound, that it's straight and right and true. Well, in Amos 7, the Lord uses a plumb line to measure the structural soundness of his people morally. Amos writes, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And he said, I see a plumb line. In the vision, the wall built with a plumb line is a picture of God's people. Israel was built or established by God when they entered into a covenant relationship with him at Mount Sinai. And in that covenant, God promised to be their God and to deliver them from their enemies and to prosper them in every way. If they promised to obey his law and follow him and have no other gods but to love and worship him alone and love their neighbors. And they said on that occasion, all that you tell us, God, we will do. And they entered into a covenant with God. And you should know, Amos is prophesying to the 10 northern tribes of Israel here in particular not to Judah. Judah and Israel have already split up, if you know the history. And the first king of the 10 northern tribes of Israel was the king Jeroboam. You may remember from your Bible reading in 1 Kings or 2 Kings that God extended the same covenant promise to Jeroboam that he had extended to David. God told Jeroboam in 1 Kings 11, if you will listen to all I command you and you will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, I will build your kingdom like I did for David and Israel will prosper. 
But Jeroboam had not followed God's commands. He did not walk in God's ways. In fact, he sinned abominably. It's one of those kings you're reading through, through the book of Kings where they would, the, the, the author would always compare how bad their sins were to how bad Jeroboam sinned. You have to be a very bad sinner to be the standard for bad sinning. And that's what Jeroboam was. He led the northern tribes of Israel into a downward spiral of immorality and adultery from which they never recovered. So if Israel is a wall and Amos sees the Lord standing next to the wall with a plumb line, a wave of anxiety must have washed over the prophet because this can only mean one thing. The Lord is coming to test whether the wall, whether Israel, the nation that he built, whether it's plumb, whether it is straight, true, perfectly upright, whether they are keeping their end of the covenant and following God's commandment in obedience because a wall that is not plumb needs to come down. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, my covenant people. And here is the Lord's conclusion after looking at the wall and looking at the plumb line. He says, I will never pass by them again. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the structures of Israel shall be laid waste and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. In other words, it was obvious that the wall needed to come down because Israel was out of plumb according to the standard by which her God had established her. They were not loving and obeying God alone. In a word, Israel was not right with God. Now, it's not surprising that the word right is used for expressing geometrical realities like an upright wall and metaphorically to express moral realities like an upright person. In fact, there is a particular angle where the vertical line is precisely perpendicular to the baseline. We literally call this a right angle, an angle whose vertical line is plumb to the horizontal line. We use the same word to express moral correctness that we use to express geometrical uh, correctness. And that's not true, by the way, just of English, but in multiple languages. The same adjective for expressing what is morally good, appropriate, true, and just is the same word they use for geometrical measurement. This is true in Greek, Hebrew, German, French, Spanish, Italian, Mandarin. I did some homework this week. I even looked this up in Malay and Icelandic, okay, to find out. And which is to say that cultures the world over of people made in God's image, they have a sense not only of geometric and mathematic rightness, they all have a sense of moral rightness. Now, in the English New Testament, the adjectives right or righteous are not, are, 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 and just are, are interchangeable because they are literally the same Greek word. The adverb rightly is the same word as justly or justifiably. So when we see the word justified in the Bible, especially the New Testament, that is a word that means to be declared right, to be declared just, or in the right in the sight of God. When people are justified, declared to be in the right in the Bible, the idea is that they are morally plumb, they are morally straight, true, perfect, 
aligned with the standard. Aligned with what standard? The standard of God's holy will as expressed in his word. The word of God is the standard for what is plumb, what is right, what is straight, what is holy. And anything that deviates from this perfect standard is considered sin. Psalm 33 says, the word of the Lord is upright. Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. When we eventually hire a builder to construct a sanctuary here at Gateway, he and his contractors are not just going to eyeball the angles and the framing and say, well, you know, that looks straight enough to me. They're, they're not going to stand back and say, yeah, that, that seems right. We wouldn't hire a builder like that. A builder appeals to a standard that he knows is right. Because he knows that what might appear straight to him, what might appear upright to him, might not be perpendicular at all. Our sense of what is straight and true can be obscured by the surrounding landscape and by our own perspective. Have you ever tried to put shelves on a wall without using a level? Or build a square frame without a framing square? If we want to build rightly, we must rely on a perfect standard. And that's the way it is with us and God. God has expressed his divine will in his word, and he desires that we, his people, truly follow his word. That we align our lives straight and true according to that word. That we do not compare our lives to the surrounding culture to feel like we're okay. Or simply try to judge what is right and true and, uh, based on our, our perspective but that we always plumb our lives to the standard of God's word. God told his people, Israel, you must live according to this righteous, just standard. If you do not, you will face the righteous and just penalty that is due your sin. The bad news in the Old Testament, of course, is that no one could appear before God and survive and be welcomed into his glory unless they were perfectly plumb, unless they, plumb, they, they perfectly aligned with his word. And throughout the Old Testament, it was apparent again and again that the human race is sinful because people that God chose for his own and gave them the law and blessed them and gave them every opportunity to obey again and again could not bring their lives into alignment with God's divine standard. So God had to judge them. But in judging them, he also made a promise. He said, since you cannot be right on your own, I'm going to make you right myself. For example, God tells them in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, in context, this promise for Israel as a nation will be fulfilled in the reign of Christ upon this earth. But God has already brought about what is necessary for both you and I to participate in this new heart so that we are right with God, 
so that we no longer must face his judgment for our lives, which are out of plumb. God sent his son, Jesus, not only to accept the punishment for our sins through his cross and not only to arise from the dead so that all who believe will live forever with him in his resurrection life, but also to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us so that we now have the desire within us that Ezekiel spoke of to follow God's will, to bring our lives. We desire to bring our lives into plumb, into a right relationship with God. Now, all that I have said so far, the nation of Israel's being out of plumb and God promising to bring her and all of his people back to his standard, is understood by James when he sends this very Jewish Christian letter to his people. In fact, you know that the author of this letter, James, the brother of Christ, in the very early church, he was commonly referred to by another name, James the Just or James the Right. Clement of Alexandria, who was born in the middle of the second century, said that James was called James the Just because of the purity of his extraordinary virtue. So James knows a thing or two about a righteous standard. And he uses the language of righteousness and justification in this letter. For example, in James 1, by the way, we're now going to be in the book of James. Uh, and I, we're going to look at several passages here. In James 1, verses 19 through 20, something we've already covered in our series, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, as a brief reminder, verses 19 and following have to do with how a believer responds to the word of God. We need to be quick to hear the word that's hearing with an intent to obey, not answering back, especially not growing angry. Because as he says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We should read this as the righteousness that God requires. If we push back against the word in anger, we are not going to meekly submit to it and we are not going to be living rightly, justly. James says he wants us to be eager to hear the word and obey the word so that we're living in a way that is right or just or plumb with God's will. We see the same kind of negative example when we read chapter 3. In James 3, verse 6, he refers to the tongue as a world of unrighteousness. In other words, our tongue has the amazing capacity to commit all kinds of sins that do not align with God's perfect will. And later in the same chapter, he says that when you live peaceably with one another, by contrast, when you live peaceably with one another, it produces a literal harvest of righteousness. I love this text. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and insincere. That ought to be the goal of every church member at Gateway Baptist Church, to live out these virtues. Wow. He says, if this is lived out, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, a harvest of, of works that are plumb with God's will. When you are gracious and merciful and impartial in your relationships with another, one another in the body of Christ, it creates a culture where actions and thoughts and motives are true with God's will. And that kind of righteousness flourishes. It's no wonder then 
that James refers to believers as those who are righteous. You see this word righteous person. The word person is added for clarity. He's just using the adjective to refer to the person. He literally says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous. He does not resist you. Here, James is using the term righteous in contrast with the wicked, contrast with the wicked, unbelieving landowners who are taking advantage of the poor, troubled believers. So in James' vocabulary, the righteous do not refer to those who are at some high level of Christianity. Righteous refers to any believer in contrast to an unbeliever. And we see the same down in verse 16 of the same chapter. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And we need to unpack that verse more when we get there. But again, I want to say that James is not speaking of a special class of Christian. He's saying that any believer, any righteous one, can pray effectively if he just prays. Now, why is it that James speaks of the believer in this way? Why does James call the believer a righteous one, a plumb one, a, a one who is rightly aligned? Two reasons, and they're both evident in James 2, verses 21 through 25. This is part of the text we studied last week. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Okay, let's press the pause button for just a second. Back at the beginning, I gave you a definition of justification. It is that act of God whereby he declares the believer to be righteous before him. That's right with God. That's plumb, perfectly aligned with God's holy will. Not based on his or her own good works, but only upon the work of Jesus alone. And I hope you understand the seriousness of this doctrine. If we aren't declared righteous, we are condemned for all eternity. Our, our, our eternity hangs on justification because we have sinned against an infinite, holy, infinitely holy God and we have to be right with God if we are going to be with him. But there is nothing we can do to be right with him. That is why God declares us to be righteous by placing us in the Son when we believe the gospel so that what is true of Jesus Christ is now true of us. We have an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection, don't let anybody ever tell you that you need to get right with God. As a believer in Christ, you are already right with God because of Christ. Our righteousness with God was the very point of the cross. It's the best deal in human history. Christ takes all our sin and we get all his righteousness. That's why the Apostle Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And later Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we know that James is speaking of this justification that Paul is referring to? that he's not just saying that Abraham was justified in a different sense than this. I think it's because of the way James begins this whole section. If we can go back for just a second to verse 14, where he starts talking about a real faith, a faith that is evidenced by works. James says, 
what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What faith? That faith. A faith that consists of confession only. A faith that consists of mere words, mere ideas, no actions, nothing to show for it. That kind of faith, James says, cannot save a person, can it? Which is actually how he asks the question in Greek. And the answer is, no, James, that kind of empty faith cannot save a person because it's not faith at all. But notice that James's ultimate concern is whether one is saved. So when we come to verse 21 and James asks about Abraham's justification, he's ultimately saying, how do we know Abraham was saved? How do we know that he was a true believer? James' answer is, because we have a faith that is evidenced by obedience that we see in Abraham's life. Not just religious activity that we perform because we don't want to disappoint people who we love and look up to. Not something you do merely because you were raised that way, but because your heart has been transformed to desire and to love and to know God through Christ. We see this in verses 20 through 22 and 23. Notice here, James says, you see that Abraham's faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works as we looked at very closely last week. And the scripture, Genesis 15, 6 to be exact, was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it, that faith, that belief in God, which was evidenced by his works, by the way, was counted to him as righteousness. His works weren't counted to him as righteousness. His faith in Christ, or I should say his faith in God, his faith in what God had revealed to him at that point, was counted as righteousness. And his faith was evidenced by his works. And he was called a friend of God. In Isaiah 41, 8, God calls Abraham my friend. So James understands this concept of faith leading to righteousness, leading to justification. But James's emphasis is on a particular aspect of that justification. Namely, those who are justified continue to live just lives. Those who have been declared to be right with God continue to live right before God. I want you to notice here in this text that each of the three times James uses the word justified, it is always followed by two other words. You see that? Justified by works. He says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, he's not saying that we can't be saved by faith. He's saying we can't be saved by good works. He's saying our faith is, if it's absent of good works, is not true faith. And he even uses the example of Rahab, the prostitute, who was justified by works when she received the spies and sent them out another way. Every person who confesses belief in Christ, every person who believes in God, whether it is Abraham the patriarch or Rahab the prostitute, can be justified with a faith that is real, a faith evidenced by works. By the way, do you know that the Apostle Paul says virtually the same thing 
Do we not have Romans 2.13, where Paul says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified? Everybody talks about whether James is responding to Paul. Well, it looks to me like Paul has been reading James when I read Romans 2.13. So while James, not to mention the Apostle Paul, would never say to you, if you are already a believer, you need to get right with God, They may say to you, you need to walk right with God. That's James's emphasis. He knows that the scripture holds up a perfect standard, and he knows that we are hopelessly condemned without true faith in Christ, which gives us that positional righteousness like Abraham had before God because he believed. But James is telling us how to live up to our faith. So he turns to say, now those of you who are justified, you need to live just lives to help produce a veritable harvest of righteousness. What have you actively done this week as a believer in Christ to produce righteous works for God's glory alone out of a motivation simply to please God, out of a life that has been declared righteous? We expect a builder to build and a manager to manage, and a doctor to heal, and a soldier to fight, and a baker to bake, and a driver to drive. God expects his justified ones to walk justly, obediently, to live righteously by his grace for his glory. James says that's how you know your faith is real. That's how James speaks of being right with God. So as we come to the table, let's thank the Lord for what he has done through Christ to save us, to justify us. But let's also commit ourselves today and every day to live out the kind of righteous life that justified people are saved to live. Father, you know our hearts intimately more than we could ever know them. But even with the little we know, we sense our dire need to be reminded of this truth. Because we think theologically, and so many of us, most of us, all of us, are educated people. We, we know how to read. We read your word. We, we can discern the meaning of the text in its context. And we can have theological discussions. We can have theological disagreements. We can prove our point about what we think the Scripture is saying. We can even defeat somebody else's argument. Father, all these things and more are true of us. And yet we confess that we do not obey what you tell us your Word is doing so often. And Father, I pray that you would build within us through the person of Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Spirit, as we yield to you, that you would build within us that active obedience, living out, fleshing out the righteousness that we already have with God in our lives. And Father, thank you that when we see, no matter how small this this work coming out of us because we simply desire to please God. We're not trying to please men. We're not trying to show off. We're not just living culturally, but we we have this desire to live a life for you and we see this work come out, that that is encouraging to us. That's assurance, that's evidence 
that we belong to you. Father, encourage us in this way and build within us the kind of rightness practically which we know blesses the heart of our God. That's what we want. Father, we want you to be pleased with us because we love you. Pray that you would continue to minister to your very weak creatures who have been strengthened nevertheless by the power of God through Jesus Christ. And Father, minister to us as we are reminded of these things and as we rehearse once again what you have done for us through the cross. And we'll give you the praise for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles further to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that we almost always read when we gather around uh, the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 23, where Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Jesus gave himself for us. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you show forth, you tell the story of the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is about to go to the cross and make possible our being able to be justified and to live out that justification in real ways as he did. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, which I think means it's, it's as if you crucified Jesus yourself. So he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why he tells the Corinthians, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is so serious. But Paul says, if we judge ourselves, truly we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. The Lord disciplines his own. That we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, in this call that Paul has in the second part of this text, he says, let a person examine himself. I think it's good for us when we come before the table to take just a few moments and reflect within ourselves. Are we, are we following the Lord? We're justified. Are we following the Lord justly? And let's recommit. Let's refocus. Let's realign ourselves to that standard. And let's thank the Lord for what he has done for us. I'm going to...